Welcome to Indefinable Magic. Random ingredients thrown together in the hope of producing something palatable and vaguely related to Doctor Who. Written and performed by me, Toby Haydoke. On the menu today, Terror of the Onions. I hate pears. No, I don't. I love them. Of course I do. In fact, there's nothing I won't eat because I don't like the taste of it, and especially not a pear. I mean, that said, I can't remember the last time that I had one, but I appreciate their qualities nonetheless. They're perfectly nice as a lone fruit just to be munched. Softer, usually, slightly sweeter than an apple, with a dewy, nectar-like undercurrent. They're versatile, too. Poached in red wine with warming winter spice, they transform themselves into a perfect December dessert. Immersed in the soft, chewy lava of a frangipange, they're magic, mellowly accompanying the marzipan toastiness of almonds. And then they can act as a sweet lance to pierce through the chocolatey armour of a luxuriously heavy tort. Oh no, I like a pear. Unfortunately, so does the doctor, as the scene in which he enunciates his dislike for the poor old poire only resides in the missing scenes. The edited, cutting-room-floor-bound purgatory that awaited moments cut from the excellent human-nature family-of-blood two-parter. A fabulous story of thwarted love, terrifying, strange villains, and that scene of schoolboys getting a foretaste of the trenches as they man machine guns before an onslaught of terrifying scarecrow monsters. It's one of the most bizarrely brilliant and affecting moments the show has ever done, a scene that could work in Doctor Who and nowhere else. Balancing the macabre and the profound, the strange and the human, the imaginative and the emotional, with extraordinary deftness. It even has one of our finest and most brilliant TV character actors, Pip Torrens, in it. And he's not even playing one of the guest leads. Oh yes, sometimes the true test of a restaurant is found in the quality or otherwise of its side dishes. And with Rocastle de Torrens as a standout plat d'accompagnement, human nature is clearly after a Michelin star. So you know... I like human nature. I don't hate it. And I don't hate pears. And you know what? I don't think the doctor should either. Now, when I say it's on the cutting room floor, I still think the dialogue is probably there on screen somewhere, as Martha fast-forwards through the list of things that the doctor has told her not to forget as he hides, shrouded even from himself, disguised as a human schoolteacher, in early 20th century England. He gives her various instructions. Don't let him hurt anyone. Don't worry about the TARDIS. Don't get involved in historical events. And then one of them is meant to be, don't give me pears. I hate pears. 
It's a good joke, of course. Set against the import of the major stuff, it's a small, silly thing that becomes funny by the juxtaposition. And we all like a good joke. Unless, of course, it doesn't chime with our world view, and then we get furious. Now, yes, we all have our hills to die on, of course. And they frequently seem like unremarkable pieces of land to those who haven't planted a flag in them. But I am really uncomfortable, and I mean uncomfortable in terms of having a civilised conversation about it. I'm not going to write to the BBC or daub obscenities on the front door of those responsible for it, and I literally do know where Paul Cornell lives. But I am. I'm uncomfortable with the idea of the Doctor being a fussy eater. One of the great things about the Doctor is that he, or she, is not only a great hero, but also a great example to the young viewers. Oh yes, the Time Lord has flaws. The Third Doctor's arrogance, the Fourth's alien detachment, the First Doctor's bad temper and occasional desire to kill a caveman with a rock to the skull. But the great example he or she sets for their young charges is to invest them with a fascination in the universe and all of its fruits. Doctor Who has a zealous, almost innocent appetite, and not just for knowledge and experience. My heart sinks when I see a kid at a school fete or some such, told by a parent, you won't like that, instilling in them the idea that food is something not to be trusted, rather than a blessing from God or nature, you decide which, and part of this miraculous ecosystem, this crazy set of biological accidents that means we are sustained and propelled and healed by the very things that grow on the earth we walk on. And that not only does that sustenance fuel us, but the very consumption of it is a sensual, pleasurable act that spikes many other receptors in our bodies. And even the growing of that food can be a healthy, productive, even meditative process, benefiting us long before the results of its propagation are prepped for the table. As a response, a doubt like broccoli is a pretty disappointingly prosaic one. And it's not just that I'm fortunate enough to have a very eclectic palette. And I do. I like the androids of Tara, the Ark, and the parting of the ways. And if that's not eclectic, then I don't know what is. <laughs> I love the line in the Blues Brothers. We play both kinds of music, country and western. <laughs> uh, and look, this isn't some middle-class gourmand going, oh, well, you just must try the Ivy's Gravidlax. It's to die for. Almost everything I ate as a kid, oh, dying for a frozen pizza, actually, or a burger, or something even vaguely artificial, was grown in the garden and made by my mum, because it was more cost-effective and money was tight. I'm not playing the violins here, just heading off any accusations that what I'm talking about is the result of privilege. It's actually born from necessity, from eating what was put in front of you because... Well, there wasn't anything else. Fussiness wasn't a luxury we could afford, as many an hour spent not being allowed to leave the table until I'd finished that congealing sausage or sloppy leek that got colder and less appealing by the minute as I stared down dolefully at them will attest. 
Top marks to my brother, by the way, for solving the sausage conundrum by getting me to pretend it was a cigar and then shoving it in. Psychology. There was loads of stuff I didn't like upon first go as a kid. Unfamiliar things are always a shock to the system. I'm looking at you, McCoy Logo. But I didn't have much choice. Mum had a kitchen garden and grew most of the veg we ate, so what was on our plate represented not only the effort that went into cooking it, but also the intense labour, nurture and time injection that went into the propagation of its content from seed to supper. To turn your nose up would be a personal slight and would inspire ire and disappointment in equal measure. And while she's quite a down-to-earth woman, my mum, her sense of drama is never knowingly kept under wraps. Oh, she never cooked a meal. She slaved over a hot stove. Now, my mum's great, but I'm not sure that I could honestly recommend her often tyrannical response to an eight-year-old's caution about spinach. But that said, it nonetheless means that I assimilated flavours I may otherwise have rejected out of hand on first attempt. Maybe if the doctor hadn't been allowed to leave the dinner table on pear day, he'd have had less time to go gallivanting to places like Xeros or Carfell and would have saved us all a lot of pain in the process. But I know when I've seen my kids, who don't solely live with me so are exposed to other influences when it comes to attitudes to sustenance, pull away when offered something new, treating food with suspicion, it saddens me so especially when I think of how young people born in another time or place would be grateful to have anything to put in their mouths, unable to afford the luxury of rejecting something because its taste may, at first, be strange or its smell off-putting. In fact, my first thought when I think about food and Doctor Who is a very complex fare that I definitely wouldn't have liked at the time. In the book of Doctor Who and the Day of the Daleks, I loved reading the sequence in which the Doctor enjoys eating blue cheese and supping on fine wine from the cellar of the apparently haunted house he is keeping watch in overnight. His kind assistant Joe relieves him of some of his midnight feast in order to provide a bit of on-duty sustenance for Sergeant Benton. Just as the doughty NCO is about to tuck in and fill his obviously rumbling belly, famished, he tells Joe he is, Killjoy Captain Yates comes along, swipes the food from under Benton's nose, sends him back out on patrol, and scoffs the lot himself. R.H.I.P., as he tells Joe. Rank has its privileges. It's a great book with loads happening, Day of the Daleks, but for some reason, that little character interlude always stuck with me. And unlike a lot of the best bits in the Target books, it also featured in the TV version as well, as I was to discover later. It doesn't propel the plot one bit, but it's a dainty amuse-bouche, and the episode would be far less satisfying without it. Watching it on TV, it is still a very effective sequence. John Pertwee's Doctor is perfectly at home among the fineries, and you just know he'd be a wine bore, and someone who knows his dolce latte from his dairy lee. So it's great fun seeing him relax in these surroundings, helping himself and being indulgent. Yes, that's a most good-humoured wine. A touch sardonic, perhaps, but not cynical. Yes, a most civilised wine. 
one after my own heart, he says, in a prime example of things the doctor can say which would make you want to punch anybody else, but somehow he gets away with. Talking of being good-humoured, Joe picks up the cheese and wine and the Benton Yates food-off ensues. And the look of thwarted ravenousness given by John Levine playing Sergeant Benton, who really does look famished as the script asks him to, as Captain Yates steals the smorgasbord from under his nose, is one of the best and yet the saddest things in Doctor Who ever. It's slightly spoiled by the way that Yates then necks the wine. That's no way to drink a decent vintage, and in fact, it's not even a way to drink Tesco Merlot, and is a clear indication that the glass contains popular TV red wine stand-in Ribena, and not something a bit more complex and full-bodied that no one could ever quite glug like that without gagging or at least wincing. But the point is, at that time, I had probably looked at blue cheese and been hugely put off by it. Understandably so. It is, after all, curdled fat with mould added. Hardly a combination that exactly sells itself in the mm, you're going to love this steaks. And I was too young for wine. It smelt heavy and harsh, and I think the odd sip I may have had of it I had found acrid and brackish. But that's because I was eight, and they are complex and complicated flavours. And as my palate developed and became exposed to more things, I found such complexity more interesting, and in fact came to crave it, and have enjoyed many hours sampling different sorts of cheese and wine since. I'm happy to report, though, that even when I briefly piloted the idea, briefly and in retrospect, punchably, of having a wine book, to note which ones we'd particularly enjoyed or not. And to be fair to me, like many tasks I embark on, it was a heady and productive, ooh, eight or nine days, but it didn't get picked up for a full season, and I've never done it again. The most descriptive we ever got was to describe something as lovely and light, or complex and heavy, or only a fiver and good enough to have as the second or third bottle. And not once did we use the words sardonic or cynical in those descriptions, making us several Jilly Gouldens removed from the third Doctor. Uh, Jilly Goulden, dear listener, is the universally recognised unit of measurement of pretentiousness in wine description. And yes, I know there's a danger here. I know food snobs are utterly tedious. And fantastic though Pertwee's Doctor is, he does run the risk of being a bit of a pretentious oaf at times. But strip away our own judgments about people, our hatred perhaps of condescension, and our presumption that folk who like the finer things are merely parading their superiority over the rest of us and will be the first with their backs to the wall when the revolution starts. And so long as people who like Rockfor and Rioja are not dismissive of people who like, to quote the Ninth Doctor, beans on toast, then surely an interest in, an appetite and a hankering for new, complex, challenging flavours is what life is all about. They're what make us human. They will definitely be present and correct in a well-prepared meal. And they mean that food is more than fuel, and experiencing 
all the tastes and combinations that we can, exploring the whole gamut of experiences that could trip along our taste buds, pummeling them into different and unexpected directions, is surely our duty, given that we have been blessed with the enjoyment of food absent from the genetic programming of many of the creatures we share the earth with. An anteater is going to eat ants. He hasn't got much choice. We, on the other hand... I remember asking Russell T. Davis about the Ninth Doctor's unflowery food request when enjoying one last meal with Blonde Felfoch Pasamir de Slitheen in Boomtown. Steak and chips seems like a statement. This isn't the flowery Edwardian gent who may alienate the youth audience the series wishes to cultivate. The Doctor deliberately swerving pretentiousness. A Doctor not stern and avuncular, but a more modern, less austere figure who loves the simple things in life and definitely isn't going to do a pertwee and order filet mignons or devilled oysters. A doctor who could wander the Powell estate and be regarded as a weirdo, sure, but not a posh git in need of a good kicking. But Mr Davis told me that he hadn't really seen it like that at all. He wasn't thinking of pertwee when he wrote that, but instead of Colin Baker in The Two Doctors, who ends that story as a vegetarian doctor. With Boomtown essentially a liberal debate about the death penalty over dinner, Russell didn't want to throw a vegetarian doctor into the mix, lest the episode come across as if it had been composed deep in the bowels of Guardian Towers by a scientific elite composed entirely of the chattering classes. The intelligent moral wrangling might have had a patrician, metropolitan tone if it had been accompanied by a side order of mung beans. So Mr Davis, who himself loves steak and chips, wanted something earthy to counterpoint the chat. An alfalfa omelette would, at this point, have made, to quote Mr Davis himself, half of the audience go, you're nothing to do with me, mate. It's a smart observation and a very good point and one that liberal do-gooders like myself can sometimes be slow to learn and then often forget once they have. And so the Russell T. Davis doctor, in his ninth regeneration, was deliberately portrayed as no longer vegetarian, as he had become in The Two Doctors two decades earlier. Now, I don't mind that, even though those of us who think of the doctor as an all-life-is-sacred peacenik kind of guy which I sort of do, even though there's massive evidence to the contrary, we often create the Doctor in our own image after all, would probably rather he was a non-animal-killing plant scoffer. But actually, he's a guy, or now, gal, who travels through time and space in a police box. He's seen real horror, so is unlikely to be too sentimental about the very common biological process of using lesser species to sustain himself. And that's fair. And I say that as someone who doesn't eat meat myself. It's not my way or the highway. Partially because the highway can throw up the moral dilemma of roadkill and whether it's actually better to eat something that has died accidentally after living a good life in order for that death not to be a waste. In some religions, there's actually something honourable 
about using God's creatures for the benefit of mankind. It's all part of a glorious miracle, and I can get on board with that, even though I choose not to partake myself. And I don't preach about being veggie. I only mention it here for full disclosure. And I'm pragmatic enough to know that if I was in a plane crash tomorrow, I'd happily eat a rabbit to survive. Not that I'd be able to catch one. It'd have to be a very ill rabbit, or a suicidal one. But look, I'm not in a plane crash, and I am in the fortunate position of living in the UK in the 21st century, where it's pretty easy to muddle along without having to eat a pork pie, or a spam fritter, or a pepperoni. I've never actually had a pepperoni, fact fans. And although I reject the role of preachy veggie, I do know they are common, and I can only apologise for them. But the other side of that coin is something less reported, and that is the amount of people in the 21st century, often those who work within the hospitality industry itself, I'm thinking of you, at least three B&Bs in Blackburn I could name, who are baffled still by the very concept of vegetarianism. What? You don't eat any meat? No. What about chicken? I mean, I'm not expecting everyone to do what I do, or to fly the flag for the cause I choose, but I'd hope they'd at least have heard of it by now. I mean, I've no interest in playing golf, but the very existence of golf hasn't passed me by. So, whilst I know that if Armageddon was announced, I'd probably rack up a bacon sandwich pretty sharpish, the younger me was nevertheless quite chuffed when the sixth doctor announced that he would be following a vegetarian diet at the climax of the two doctors. Probably the most food-obsessed Doctor Who story of all time, which, when it comes to being an advocate for vegetarianism, does rather have its cake and eat it, and once it's eaten the cake, kills the cake maker, and then throws his fingers in a blender, punches his cat, and makes a pie out of both. In fact, Early on in The Two Doctors, Colin Baker does a fantastic job of getting the viewer's hunger pangs twanging as he talks of the simple pleasure of preparing a gumblejack, a fish in the Doctor Who universe, for the table. Cleaned, he says, skinned, quickly pan-fried in their own juices until they're golden brown, ambrosia steeped in nectar perry, the flavour is unforgettable. And note... His enjoyment is as much about the preparation, the sensual process of cleaning and skinning, as it is about the cooking and the eating. Oh, Doctor, you had me at juices. <laughs> but his words, of course, end up leaving a nasty taste in the mouth as the story progresses, centering as it does upon a species of alien gourmands. And I choose that word carefully because it is an anagram of androgums. Their chief representative is a disgusting chef, played with sweaty relish by John Stratton, who, in case we need the subtext spelling out, treats humans in the way that we treat animals. On preparing his captive, our loyal friend and travelling companion Jamie, for butchery, thus taking his first steps towards his lifelong ambition of tasting human flesh, a tea-time fun for kids every Saturday... Oh, hello, Mr Grade... Shokai tells his associate Dostari that animals do not feel pain the way that we do. Oh, is that the subtext bubbling away on the stove? It's pretty grim stuff, but not without a point to make. 
It revels in its enjoyment of food. And when the second doctor, half converted into an andragum himself, sets off for a meal with Shockeye, they talk very excitedly about food, and Patrick Troughton manages to make even the idea of a simple salad starter seem like a fantastic, sprightly cleansing ritual to pave the way for more substantive fare. But it also underscores that eating, no matter how we may dress it up and how pretentious the third doctor, or indeed your humble host, might be when we eulogise its complexity, is actually as basic and primitive a ritual as you like. A biological necessity as dirty and functional as the one that happens at the other end of the body once the whole digestion thing has taken its course. The sight of Jacqueline Pierce's Chassini supposedly evolved, elevated, to be superior to her Andragum ancestry, falling to the floor to smear the doctor's blood onto her hands and then lick it with sensual longing. Oh, hello again, Mr Grade. Much to the disgust of her augmenter and de facto creator Dastari, is a brilliant evocation of the reality that, deep down, we're all hunting animals who get turned on by consumption, no matter how civilised we think we are, because we've got napkins and dinner plates and funky glasses. The tonal dissonance of the two doctors is best summed up when comedy character Oscar Botcherby, a moth-capturing, out-of-work actor who serves Shockeye and the second doctor their gargantuan repast, is brutally stabbed to death for refusing their intergalactic currency. It's a grim moment of, what is it, black comedy? I don't know. James Saxon acts the scene rather touchingly, even though Oscar never loses his pomposity. But for all his lovey aphorisms and the fact that he captures and poisons moths for pleasure, oh, we're having subtext croutons as well as subtext soup, are we? He is a likeable, funny character, and the death is pretty unpleasant. When I watched it at the time, it seemed all grim and grown up, which is what I wanted Doctor Who to be, so I was surprised to meet other fans later on who pointed out that it was this sort of grotesque violence that put lead in the red pencil of Michael Grade when he was making his tally of the show's violence and lack of imagination. It turns out that Colin Baker's coat wasn't to be the only totally tasteless element of his era. The fact that the TARDIS crews are capering about Spain with comic huffiness mere seconds after Oscar has expired at the sharp end of Shockeye's knife emphasises just how inured to violence the show is getting. It's a story that advocates vegetarianism whilst depicting, alongside restaurant-based theatricide, the cold-blooded murder of an old lady who is deemed too dry and brittle to eat. Lovely. The chewing out of the neck of a dead rat. Stratton's warty, wheezing, pot-bellied chef wandering around a hacienda with the severed leg of the recently atomised Sontaran group Marshal Stike, who has spent much of the episode oozing green goo after being stabbed. And finally, the Doctor himself topping the villain by trapping him in a moth net and holding him close as he smothers him with cyanide. But yeah, no beef burgers, kids. They're bad. It's amazing that at 12 I was allowed to watch this, uh, but only, of course, if I'd eaten my dinner. And guess what? I loved the two Doctors. 
I wolfed it down. In the modern era, the Doctor in Human Nature, Family of Blood, isn't the only one to reject the Andrigan way of doing things and behave in a food-cautious manner. Matt Smith spends much of his first episode as the Doctor rejecting food like a gastric speed data with very high standards. When I was told about these forthcoming scenes as yet not broadcast, which would herald the new Doctor, I was appalled. The Doctor turning his nose up at food in the presence of a youngster, a double whammy of unacceptables. Of course, in the episode, it's not as bad as it sounds, as the Doctor's body is going through changes. Like a hormonal pregnant woman, his assimilation of flavours is off-piste. For my mum, it was chocolate ice cream and gherkins. For Doctor Who, it's the now iconic fish fingers and custard. One assumes, well, this one assumes because it suits my purpose, that soon the Doctor's body settles down and he can once again eat the things he so unceremoniously chucks out initially. Everything from bread and butter to yoghurt to bacon. So it's not that he's a fussy eater, it's that things taste wrong to a Time Lord as their genetics coalesce post-regeneration. Like orange juice at breakfast when you've just brushed your teeth. And anyway, the food rejection leads to several really good jokes. Yoghurt is just stuff with bits in, he says, not unfairly. He tells Amelia Pond, the young witness to his orgy of nourishment renunciation, that, as she's Scottish, she should fry something. And the, and stay out, as he turfs bread and butter out through the front door, is gloriously funny. So, you know, even if it wasn't clear that this is a chemical imbalance and temporary failure of assimilation rather than a pian to the joys of fussy eating, I forgive the scene so much because it's funny. Because, you know, sometimes I say something I don't mean for the sake of a laugh. It's what we do. Ten million internet, I think you'll find us, take note. Jokes tend to twist the truth rather than just repeat it. It's what makes them jokes. It's still not going to stop me writing something at some point that involves the 11th Doctor eating all of the stuff he poo-poos when he first dips his toe into the life of Amy Pond to show that once his regenerational hormonal beta crisis thing is over, his palate settles down and he likes everything. Even pears. And why not? I've seen history rewritten on a grander scale with less dramatic justification, but hey, that's for another time. I mean, I do get that some food is hard to eat. I think my granddad had lost his taste buds or something, but he could always detect an onion in anything. He'd eat everything else, but something about the texture of onion was just a step too far for him. The acting of Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred when eating what looks to be sweet corn in mayonnaise standing in for the insides of some sort of alien gourd hawked by Peggy Mount in The Greatest Show in the Galaxy is one of the most convincing evocations of disgust ever portrayed in the show. These are people who regularly witness slaughter and violence, but some yellow custard flesh is what really turns their stomachs. What I like about this, though, is that to show deference to the stalls lady, they have to eat, as the doctor says, almost 
revelling in the grotesqueness of the prospect. Every last bite. Manners, you see. It's polite, doing something you don't enjoy in order to make your host feel appreciated. And who knows? Maybe if they hadn't been waylaid by a trip to the psychic circus, perhaps the Doctor and Ace would have eventually developed a taste for yellow alien marrow mayo. I have friends who sometimes come around when I've made a huge old buffet who won't try a certain something because they tell me that they don't like this or they don't like that, but then that they haven't eaten, say, a tomato since they were about 14. Well, your palate develops and changes all of the time, and also a tomato in a quiche tastes different from a tomato in a soup, tastes different to a tomato sun-dried and put in a bread. So I'd argue it's worth giving something a go, especially when I've slaved over a hot stove all day to make it. I mean, I didn't like the Happiness Patrol when I was 14, but I love it now. Tastes change. And indeed, I have to admit that the death of Oscar Botcherby now turns my stomach rather, and is not as palatable to me as once it was. Now that's food for thought. Thank you for digesting Indefinable Magic. This week's offering was Terror of the Onions and was written and read by me, Toby Haydock. The original music was composed by Dominic Glynn. Oh yeah, and I know Peter Capaldi said that about pears before his regeneration, but he was about to regenerate. He was delirious and dying and it was a joke. Oh, well, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I'll never forgive you for this, Moffat. If you enjoy this stuff, you can support me on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Toby which has different tiers and can unlock bonus material or early stuff. But generally, it's a pay what you can slash want model. If you don't want to do the monthly commitment thing, you can buy me a coffee whenever you like on Ko-fi. That's Ko-fi, K-O-F-I dot com forward slash Toby Haydock. Anyway, that's enough of that. I hope I've made your day a little better than it was half an hour or so ago. And until next time, well, stay safe, stay well, and very many happy times and places. Goodbye. Please subscribe to the official Toby Haydock YouTube channel.